This is a Broad Pods production. This is Pause Beyond the Court. Playing a team sport when you're a young woman creates friendships, community, and fitness, along with delivering a few challenges too. Joe White, a mum and qualified social worker, has gathered those in the know from teens to experts to Olympic champs and beyond to make navigating those challenges much easier with a bonus mindful moment in each episode. I'm Jo, your host, and next up we have Professor Rochelle Imey. She's a sports scientist and the deputy chair of Vic Sport. I wanted to know how much do kids really benefit from playing sport? So what's the most important thing to you about playing basketball? Is it winning or having fun? Both, because it's more fun when you win. It's mainly just having fun because I like just having yeah, having fun with my friends and stuff on court. Probably having fun because like you can also develop your skills and stuff. How does a good coach communicate with you? Um, well, I feel like some coaches just they're more focused on the game and like on making sure that you're good instead of like helping you be better. And sometimes like they could come across like you might think that they're being like mean or you're scared of them if they're like yelling at you. So I guess they're just going to be like understanding or something. They need to make sure that like they can't just be focused on the game. They've also got to be able to connect with you because if you can't connect with your players then it doesn't mean as much like in the game like it's kind of just like oh yeah just a game but like when you're more closer then it kind of feels more like family and winning the game is more important. Um, I think that they need to understand that it's not all about winning and also for like improvement and everything. So, Rochelle, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to connect with you and have you as a part of this podcast. You have some amazing, I guess, background and experience looking at sports and have recently completed some research that was published earlier this year. So it'd be really great for you to, I guess, start off and and have a little talk about that. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more or tell us a little bit more about the focus of your research. Yeah, thanks, Jo. It's it's great to be here today. Um, I'm passionate about community participation in sports, so getting people active uh, through community sports so they can get all the benefits, uh, life skill development um, for for children and youth, as well as the, the social connectedness, mental health and physical health and well-being. So our research looks at the trends in participation, trying to understand them as well as understanding why people play sport, why they drop out um, and have a big focus on, on, on retention and trying to get people re-engaged in sport. Yeah. So I think as you sort of touched on, um, you know, community sports is that key focus for you. So why why is that interest? I think 
just it comes down to the benefits of, of participation. I mean, I've always enjoyed playing sport myself, but now um, as a parent with young kids, um, you know, you see them connected uh, to others within their community. That if you're not playing sport, how do children and youth connect to to, to others within their community? Um, but they, you know, they learn to lose, they learn to win, they learn to be part of a team, they learn um, that dedication um, and striving to achieve, which I think is is really important um, when they sort of don't get those sort of life lessons necessarily through school or or, or other ways. It's amazing the connection and community that comes with community supports and how it's not just the players or the sports people that are involved, just that ripple effect that it has through families, whether it's also through school or other avenues is really incredible. And I think it's, you know, that building self-esteem, that building connection and that socialisation, which is really, really important. And I guess the other thing is not everyone is the same in their ability or confidence to give sport a go. So there's a number of factors that also impact on individuals' access to sport, which I think is really important as well and really key. With your research, was there anything particular that surprised you about the findings? Um, not a lot surprises me, um, but but some of the things with, with women and girls when we ask them about, um, you know, why they drop out and, and what makes it fun and enjoyable for them um, – Always, always about fun is about being with their friends um, and striving to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. Winning is not a big focus of, of why they play. But friendly coach came up, um, which is, was a concern for me because it's meaning that they're obviously not having a, a good experience all the time um, in terms of the way that the, the coach might be um, by coaching them. And often, often, particularly adolescent girls, they like sport to be delivered differently to them than often what do the boys do. Um, boys are, are more likely to like that masculinity um, that comes with sport and the, and the competitiveness. Um, you know, sport is about the objective is to score more points than the opposition, but that's not the reason why a lot of girls play. Mm. It is to, you know, learn a new skill, be part of a team and be with their mates. So really important that the coaches understand, you know, the motivations of why people are there and make sure it's a it's a fun and inclusive environment. What would be, say, probably the top three sort of tips or elements that really contribute to it becoming a fun exercise or activity for kids? Yeah, it's about being nice. <laughs> and I know that sounds really simplistic, but being inclusive and nice of people's skills, uh, you know, gender, ethnicity, a whole, whole range of things being inclusive but most of the reasons why people play it is to to learn a skill so they want to improve um, they want to play well as a team and they want to have fun with their friends and so keeping their friendships uh, groups together are really important but so community club the way it's structured is is the competitive model um, and it hasn't really changed in decades and that's okay for those that like that model but a lot during adolescence don't want to commit to pre-season training, um, you know, training twice a week plus game day, and it sort of gets quite serious with a big focus on winning and competition. So what we're trying to do is develop this sport for me model of sport where we actually want to ask those that have dropped out. Um, we know why they've dropped out, but we want to know would they like to return to sport and what does it look like? Um, you know, flexibility of, um, you know, uniforms, flexibility of time and commitment and still about you know, rock up school development and play a game, but it's not necessarily that full-blown competition and focus on winning. And I think that that's really important to be connected with friends. I'm aware that sometimes for girls in basketball and other sports, there's not always the numbers that there could be to create a certain number of teams. Therefore, sometimes when it's based on age, that can be a factor in dividing up groups of the um 
I guess, the players. And for someone who may feel confident enough to play because they're with friends, but who may then be put into a different age category and they walk away because it's not the same game that they thought it was or it's not the same game that they signed up for. I think that sounds really key as part of the Sports For Me focus that you have. It's about engaging and keeping that commitment and interest. Oh, absolutely. It does make it difficult with sport because um, you're trying to structure those teams and and often it is based on chronological age or or ability. But, you know, I get really disappointed when I see kids on the bench uh, of all ages and they get put on the put on the court or the field for the last two minutes of play, um, you know, they're not going to come back next year because they're not ha- having fun. Um, I've got um, 16-year-old boys, twins that, that play a lot of sport um, and, and really enjoy their footy and, and, and Braden in particular with his, with his footy and he's just started basketball for the first time. He just wants to play with his mates. And it was really evident too after COVID, you know, when the, when the boys could get back to playing footy, they just wanted to be there with their mates. That's what was really important for them. It wasn't about winning the premiership. It wasn't about necessarily, I mean, they're still trying to win the game, but it was about connecting back with their mates. And, and that's really important, particularly, you know, through adolescence. And I think that as deliverers of sport, we need to really think about the motivations of why people play and not just as a middle-aged adult thinking, you know, how we think sports should be delivered and structured, but, but asking, you know, the children and youth because we would have higher retention if they could play with their mates. Mm, no, I agree. How do you think the winning mindset and that competitive nature of sport, how does that actually impact engagement and retention? Yeah, when the coaches and the and the and the, and the parents and, and certain kids focus so much on winning, it sometimes becomes quite toxic. I mean, why do we need five best on ground awards? Um, why do we centralise those that might be um, you know a little bit better, but when it is when it is part of a team, time and time again when we ask children and youth why they play, it's not about winning. I mean, no one doesn't enjoy winning, um, mm. but it's not the reasons why they play and. And often too, the the people running community sport are often were often quite good at the sport themselves, or they think they were, or they've got a child that they're trying to get into that talent development pathway because they're often more invested, putting in the time and those volunteer roles. So it often gets focused on those sort of one percenters, rather than thinking about the other ninety nine percent of kids that just want to you know get get a bit better and, and play well with their mates. And that physical activity is really important for the body, but also for the mind as well, and just that general overall well being. And I think as you touched on, the last couple of years has been really tough in many, many ways, but to get kids reconnected and socialising, get them outdoors is also really, really important. Yep, off their screens. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We've done um, plenty of research that looks at team-based sports compared to physical activity um, that you do by yourself and people have better, often better um, psychological and social health and wellbeing um, when they're part of that team. And it's it's not rocket science, it's because of the team and club-based nature. You're with other people that you enjoy being with. But but also too, like for, for children, I couldn't ever tell my boys to walk around the block, it's good for their health. I mean, they go, you know, get stuffed mum, <laughs> but you know, let's grab a ball and jump outside and, and go and have some fun. And it's, it's amazing as kids when they grow up, no matter what sport it is, they'll make rules up themselves to make it fair and inclusive of space or place or, you know, wherever it is and, and, the, and the children's skill and ability. It's the adults that wreck the sport. Mm. <laughs> we put too many pressures on, yeah, too many boundaries and restrictions. Yeah. yeah, too many rules. Yeah, yeah. You can't do this, you can't do that, you must do that. And Whereas kids, they're, they're really quite fair when they sort it out themselves. Yeah. 
and very creative. Very creative. Yeah. What impact does this, do you think, have on self-esteem, confidence and individual well-being? Yeah, it does differ for, for boys that it, than it does for girls. I mean, through COVID, we um, we surveyed a whole range of people that were normally engaged in sport that, that weren't and the, and the boys had better resilience um, and, and better um, life satisfaction and health outcomes than, than the girls. Um, and what, what we're seeing now is that the boys have come back to sport in um, higher numbers than pre-COVID, but the girls is much lower. Um, so, you know, they're often more impacted with body image, um, social media, the, the, the like. So um, I'm really concerned about the the, the girls um, because, too, if they don't have that physical literacy, which is the skills but the confidence and competence to play, they might have been a bit sedentary, they might have put on a couple of kilos, they've been on their screens, they've disconnected from their family and friends and they can't just then rock up to sport and go, here I am. Um, so I'm, I'm really concerned about the, the particularly the, the adolescent girls that haven't returned. Mm, and that's on top of what we know already through research where it's those adolescent years for young girls that often uh, walk away for lots of various reasons. So um, it certainly, yeah, is is a concern sort of moving forward into the future. Oh, absolutely. Participation peaks at 10 to 14 and then it halves and for 15 to 19 and then it halves again. So, you know, we're really good at getting children into sport um, and and two, we've got all these modified sports programs, which are about fun, friends, skill development. And then we have club competition, which is fine for those that like that competitive nature and are quite skillful. But once you're sort of getting into that 15-year age group, there's a big skill divide between those that can play and those that can't. Mm. And so those that aren't as good or don't get picked on the, the first team um, and the age groups get bigger, so you're competing for a, a, you know, a spot on a team which might have been a two-year age group and now it's an open age group. Um, and that's where we, we do see a, a lot of drop-off, but we're not offering at the moment another opportunity for them to play. Mm. Mm. What would that look like? Well, that's the sport for me model that we're, we're trying to develop, um, flexibility on, on a whole range of different things. Um, you know, also just, just simple things like, um, you know, training's generally always Tuesdays and Thursdays. Well, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the courts are free on a Monday um, and stuff like that. And um, people, it's more of a rock up and play rather than having to commit to a full season, flexibility on uniforms, flexibility on play, but still about skill development um, and, and playing the game. Mm. What are some of the known benefits of a person-focused approach to engagement? Person-focused approach is about understanding the, the consumer's motivations and their, their needs rather than just saying here's um, one product or one program and, and you know, see who fits into that into that mould. And, and um, you know, many a times there's lots of decisions made in sport by, you know, middle-aged people and, and, and older but why don't we ask the children and the youth what they would like sport to look like? Um, and um, that that's what it's all about is delivering, developing, delivering something that, that suits, um, you know, their needs. So a youth advisory group would be something probably very beneficial to have within different sporting, community sporting groups? Oh, oh absolutely. And, and some, there is... A lot of sports now at, at sort of a state sporting association level are having um, youth advisory groups, which I, I think are fantastic because, you know, we don't often ask them how they would like sport to be delivered and how they would like to play and consume it. We offer them one model and that that's it. Um, mm. So I think it's, yeah, youth advisory groups are, are, are fantastic. We touched on before around the dropout rates for adolescent girls in sports. Do you have any further thoughts about that? It's the BFN principle. 
What is be, that? Be fucking nice. <laughs> Do you have any further thoughts around that? Like what's what's key? What's really important? It's time um, and what they want to do in their time. Um, so they get time poor. Um, you know, younger, often kids are, you know, playing sport every night of the week and but they don't have any homework, they don't have a part-time job. That's, you know, that's what they've, they've got plenty of time. But once they sort of get into, you know, later secondary school, they've got education they're trying to focus on, they've got a part-time job, boyfriends and girlfriends, they want to go to some parties, they want to go shopping, or can't fit in everything anymore. So they've got, they make choices um, and, um, you know, the commitment of sport often too gets a lot more serious, uh, a lot more time commitment. There's there's not just the training sessions, there's other gym work, other running. It it gets quite serious. Um, mm. But a lot would still like to just play, but not in such a committed and, and serious um, mode of sport. What do you think's actually currently been done well? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, look, sports... I think everyone's got good intentions, um, but you know we are we are looking at a volunteer-run um, sector. So you know everyone in the club is trying their best. Um, no one's unintentionally trying to put someone off. They're they're trying to get game day happening, uh, and that takes a lot of work to get game day happening. Um, whether it's the the canteen or the oval or the you know. There's a whole range of different volunteer roles and they're all just trying their best. And, you know, state sporting organisations, they're trying to run all the fixtures and the competitions, so, so they're trying their best. And from a policy level, um, I think we could do better. Um, sport policy is increase your numbers. So what does sport do? Get everyone to touch their ball uh, and then they've increased their numbers. Mm-hmm. But we're not actually having a focus on retention. I'm wondering what your thoughts are around sort of child wellbeing and safety in community sports, especially when you get some clubs that are quite big, you know, quite massive, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, look, it's extremely important. And there are, um, you know, new policy and guidelines that are in place to make sure that we can um, safeguard children in sport. I think it's e- extremely important. But I, I think too more broadly, just the behaviour and the culture within sporting clubs is really important to have a really positive um, environment that the kids and families can come together and and, and play sport, um, but sometimes it gets quite ugly and, you know, you've got abuse of players, you know, and, and umpires and stuff like that and, and, it, and it can be, you know, really detrimental to to, to everyone involved with those, um, you know, really poor behaviour. Um, so the culture of the club is, is, is really important and, you know, what are the values and principles within that club um, and, and do we talk about that? And um, But, you know, positive experiences is, is, and positive behaviours is, is really important. Mm, and I think it's not always um, necessarily focused on players or coaches. Sometimes the parents have the biggest role to play when it comes to being respectful and role modelling, you know, appropriate um, and healthy behaviour. Oh, absolutely. I mean, behaviour is a learned skill. We, we learn our behaviours through our social environments. So whether that's parents or, or coaches, I mean, I've seen some absolutely amazing um times when coaches and parents have pulled kids up and, you know, really said, well, then sorry, that's not what we're about. Uh, and I've seen some really awful behaviour and that as well where, you know, things have been encouraged, which is, you know, like is really poor. Um, but um, that's where good leadership is, is, is really important and to, to stand up for, for and, and to call out things.
So I guess that line of communication within a club is really important too so that people know where to go to if things are not working as well as they could or as well as they should. Oh, absolutely. Communication of the, the key roles is really important. Of uh, Also to communication of expectations. So what we expect of families, of, of players, of coaches, I think is, is really important as well as, um, you know, the volunteers. The more we can get more people volunteering – um, and, you know, if your child is playing this sport, it's a volunteer club, we expect you to help out, you know, in the canteen once a season and to, you know, umpire, you know, once a season. If you need a hand with that, we'll, we'll help you. But I think the more volunteers we can have, the more people engaged, um, it benefits the, the club immensely. What do you think will be done better? <laughs> Oh, look, there's there's lots of little things we can do. I, I call them the little levers. So if we look at participation in sport, there's there's individual factors like skill and competency. There's social factors such as, you know, peers and relationships with coaches. There's organisational factors about the culture of the club and how they, you know, program things. So I think there's lots of little things that can be done along the way, um, whether it's about, you know, skill development, in, inclusive um, of, of everyone, whether it's, you know, cost, for example. A lot of clubs think about the membership cost, but, you know, there's a lot of other little things that you don't need home and away shorts. Um, you know, like, I mean, I know that's a, a football example, but you can also have team-based uniforms. So basketball, that the team, you know, the club has all the team uniforms that the individuals don't have to buy them because the kids just grow out of them each year. Mm. Um, you know, repurposing equipment um, and stuff like that, I think it's, there's lots of little things you can do to, to minimise the, the, the cost for families. Yeah, I like that idea. I am aware of some basketball clubs that do have team uniforms and, you know, they request them back at the end of the season. And obviously that's a much affordable option for many families. And once again, it's about access, access isn't it really? Um, and being equitable. So if we want more, especially if we're wanting more young women to be a part of sport, we need to make sure it's ex- as accessible as possible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, there's a lot of examples where, where the team and the clubs do have the have the uniforms and it just, to me, it just makes perfect sense. Otherwise, you just have, you know, every year a new uniform for that child that, you know, that just gets wasted. Or you're hoping that if you've got siblings <laughs> that they can be the same number. Yeah, well, with <laughs> twins, I, I never have any hand-me-downs. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, you know, that's looking at community sport. But then as if you do have a child or a player that is able to move sort of further through to more elite sport, there's a whole lot of additional costs that come with that. And I often wonder what happens to those young people that cannot afford that but have the skill yeah, they, to be they, part of it. They get left behind. Um, you know, it is really sad. I mean, I've got a another son, um, Jared. Um, he plays tennis uh, and wants to pursue work and go with tennis. So he, it's extremely expensive. He goes through a pair of shoes every four weeks. Mm. Uh, he travels to Melbourne three or four times a week. There's private coaching. Then when he plays a tournament, um, you know, there's all the the a parent has to be there, not working. It's the accommodation uh, and and food and eating out and travel. Like the the cost once they get into those developmental squads and, and et cetera and state teams and, and then international travel, it is just extremely expensive. But mm. there are organisations like the Australian Sports Foundation that really looks at philanthropic funding um, and for community, they'll often fund uh, equipment and uniforms mm-hmm. for community clubs but also too on those um, on the talent development pathway or elite, they can set up profile pages and, and sort of like a GoFundMe page um, and help support them because, 
you know, we are so far away in Australia from international competition and mm. the costs are just exorbitant. And I guess that's also that touches on women in sport, you know, the sponsorship and the money that is there for male athletes versus female athletes is, is there's quite a difference. <laughs> it's an extraordinary difference, yeah. And so you've got, um, you know, women and girls that have got full-time jobs and, you know, maybe children, et cetera, um, and then trying to do a full-time gig and be an elite athlete as well. And I think it's, it's extremely difficult. Um, some sports are doing it better than others. Um, but we've got a, we've got a, we've come a long way. Um, I mean, I couldn't even play footy as a young girl, um, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah, and I guess that's why you know it's really important to have these conversations to make sure that we are talking about it. And um, you know, I'm very passionate about sort of one more girl, one more game. If we can get one more girl involved, it means you know another team and then another game, and you know have that ripple effect. But it's um, it's hard yakka. Oh, it is. But I think, too, another strategy is to, to look at the snowball effect of um, the relationships that, that young girls do have with, with, with their friends and, and with their families and that as well, because most people join a club because they know someone at the club. Um, so, you know, it, it's really often with the younger age groups, you know, when kids are starting out at, you know, five to seven, you know, they've got the introductory programs, they sort of rock up. But if you're a little bit older than that, how do you navigate your way to a club? It's all generally nearly always through your social connections, uh, mm. through your school friends or your family connections. I mean, I've been a member of lots of different clubs in different states of Australia, but and I'm quite good at sport, um, but I've only ever joined a club through those social connections. So those ripple effects of the social networks that, that that young girls have with their families and friends is a good way to try and then, you know, get um, others playing. I think, yeah, there's a lot to be said around um, having friendship groups, aren't there, as opposed to, you know, players just being put into different teams and groupings. Those friendship groups can really um, see the test of time. Absolutely. Um, they're, they're more likely to stay engaged in the sport. There's so many children and youth that drop out because they're not with their mates anymore. Yep. I mean, that's just that's why they want to play is to be with their mates. So why, why would we pull them apart yep. Yep. if that's what they want to do? And I think even the flexibility of having friendship teams, you can have a couple of people that may drop out and go and do something different and you can, might have a couple of other new friends that will step into that. And, you know, that could be quite fluid as well, I think, you know, season after season. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What changes do you want to see in the future? Policy on retention. (laughs) Um, What would that look like? Quite simple, that instead of, you know, rewarding clubs that win the premiership and, you know, we... that. Often too, I mean, I, I live in um, regional Victoria, you know, the community news about, you know, who's won the local footy, um, men's footy, well, who, who really cares? Not not a lot of people. But if we could focus on um, those clubs that have higher retention rates as being the club of the year, um, I think would be fantastic. And then learning from those clubs, what is it that they're doing so well? Because the, the retention rates are really staggeringly different between different clubs within the same sport. So some clubs are doing really well and some clubs are really poor. We need to find out, you know, what what are the mechanisms within those clubs that are doing really, really well and just get that to to broaden out to, to other clubs. What do you think some of the key factors might be? Um, they're nice to people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that baseline respect is really, yeah. really important. Oh, it's everything from when the first time you rock up to a club. I mean, um, you know, how you're treated uh, is really important and how your family is treated and how your friends are treated and how your coach treats you and your peers treat you and, and are you having a good time? And it really just – it's really quite simple – they just want to enjoy themselves and have fun. So fair access for all children is so important. How does a program like Sports For Me support this? Yeah, it's 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 all about being inclusive of, of everyone. So obviously you need to be able to catch a ball to start off with. Yeah. <laughs> but, but apart from that, from that, um, you know, it's, it's how do you help build someone's skill set up so they can feel confident and competent to play. But but often too, it's, it's about having a, a similar level of competency. So if you're really good at basketball and I'm really crap, we're probably not going to have so much fun together. Uh, And that's where it gets really difficult trying to marry the friendship groups with a similar level of competency Um, because you can't have those that are extremely skilled and those that are really, really poor generally aren't going to have as much fun together. And that's where it, it, it does often get, get quite difficult to try and match those two together. Yeah. And how do you best do that if you start to progress to that development to more elite um, and there can be sort of in that middle ground, there can be a a bit of difference. And for basketball, I guess you've got five on the court at the one time, you know, when you're learning new skills and new drills and trying to make sure that everyone in the team is benefiting from that, but there are clearly some that don't have the same level of capacity to learn at the same rate. Yeah, what I encourage within team environment, we, we sometimes see those better players get more game time, better, more coaching, and they get better and that they're the focus instead of sort of all individuals increasing their skills uh, and, and ability. And I think it's important we need to, to focus on everyone. Um, once you get into that, that sort of talent development pathway, I, I think it is really difficult to keep the two together. You know, I, I even see with with my son, um, Jared's playing international tennis tournaments, so he can't go play local tennis comp and have fun. I mean, mm. he's, he can play with his opposite hand maybe, and <laughs> but it's, it's really difficult. And particularly for girls that want to stay together with their friends, it does make it really difficult, but if we've got more people playing, um, then 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 hopefully we can we can make it easier for that to happen. How can parents best support their children to engage in sport? To encourage them um, from from an early age to to, to be involved with sport, obviously, to um, you know show up and be um, you know. Uh, and watch. I mean, kids all the time from a young age just want that affirmation. They want someone, oh, mum, did you see that? Or dad, did you see that? And they still want that during, you know, you know, through their, their adolescence as well. So being a part of, you know, you know, watching them, you know, game day and supporting them to get to training and, um, you know, et cetera. But it's, it's about encouragement um, of their involvement and, um, you know, you know, watching and supporting them. And it can be an amazing bonding um, experience as well, can't it? Because the kids have pretty much got your undivided attention as you're travelling in the car and provides that opportunity for lots of discussion and conversation and maybe things you could ask, you know, opportunity to ask questions that wouldn't necessarily be answered if you were anywhere else. But I think just that time and, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just don't talk about the game on the way home. No, no, that's a (laughs) (laughs) non-negotiable. But it's it's a really important thing. I mean, my boys are involved with many, many different sports. And, you know, after the game, you don't talk about the game. You know, everyone needs their cooling off period, whether you've won or lost or whatever. 
Um, and then later on you can talk about your strategy. Did you execute your strategy, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you need to focus on, yeah, what were your goals and objectives in that game rather than the, the winning and the losing um, because, you, you know, you can win matches and play quite poorly and, and you can lose matches and really play really play quite well. So it's about how you're going in your development mm-hmm. and your strategies. You're competing against yourself. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> what recommendations do you have for community sporting clubs and organisations? Individual skill um, is really important. So um, and making sure they're improving skill, the social environment is is really important. So they, you know, other peers and the, and the coaches and and the other volunteers, you know, nice and inclusive uh, to everyone, being fair in terms of programming and and structuring of the competitions. Don't just put the girls on at you know eleven o'clock at night. Or and I'll always keep asking clubs to ask questions. You know, well, why have you put the girls on at seven a.m. on Sunday when the boys always get at ten a.m. You know. Why do the the girls not get a um, a, a coach that's at a, at a certain level and, and and you know quite good? So, just asking questions rather than belittling um, them because a lot of the time too, clubs they don't know what they don't know, mm. and unless things are pointed out, a lot of the time with. Um, with a lot of the um, clubs for traditionally male-dominated sports, you know, things like, you know, sanitary bins and you know, toilets with a, a cubicle door on it, simple little things that maybe the males in the clubs haven't considered if they don't have, you know, um, daughters involved, etc. But once you sort of let them know little things that they can do, they're, they're often willing to those changes. One thing I've noticed with representation for girls in sport um, and role models is around female coaches. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot, lot less female female coaches involved in sport. We looked at um, the role of all sports volunteers just recently, and you know the the women are often the the team managers, um, or they take on the secretarial roles or the treasury roles, um, whereas the the males are generally coaching. I think. What we need to do in local clubs is ask the skill set of the parents. What is your day job or what are you good at? And then try and match those those skills. I was involved with a um, uh, local club when my kids were, you know, 10 and under. And they asked for some parents to help out on um, training. And I said, yeah, well, I'm going to be here every every um, training session. I'm happy to help out. It's about encouragement as well because often women need that tap on the shoulder and that, that personal encouragement to put their hand up. But they also need support as well. So if they're being abused on court, um, why would they want to be involved? They're told that they're no good. Um, I think... I think too with the youth, um, getting them in decision making around the clubs is really important. But getting them to to volunteer in these roles as well. I mean, I've seen with my sons when they've um, you know done some some umpiring. It's been really good for them to see uh, the other side of things. And so I think it's it's important that they they do give back to the clubs through volunteering in different roles. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Make sure they're supported, and also make sure that we've got the systems set up to ensure that they have life in whatever it is that they choose to be involved in, no matter what sport it is. Absolutely. And um, thanks, Joe. Yeah, it's, it's just all about, you know, fun, friends and play the game. It's not about the winning. No, no. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. One White Minute. Sometimes nerves can take over and make you uncomfortable. What you do when that happens can make all the difference it can be helpful to take a moment to pause. Tuning into your body and how you're feeling can help you to use your body to regulate. Hi, I'm Jo White, and right now I'm going to take you through 60 seconds that will help you hit pause. This is One White Minute.
stand up and shake your body. Make sure you give it a really good wiggle. Breathe in through your nose while you do this. Then breathe out through your mouth and make a brrrr sound with your lips. A bit like a raspberry, like this. Do this a few times and see how you feel. If you need something a little extra, you can go to the bathroom and splash some cold water over your face. Or you can grab some chewy and give it a quick chew. But of course, make sure you bin it before the game. Pause beyond the court.